1: Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein.
2: Good early evening from here in New York City. This is Joe Ryan with another edition of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's discussion is going to be an intriguing one, and one that I think is uh, sort of going to make archaeology much more contemporary to a wider, broader listenership and specifically younger people, and it's an intriguing topic, and the topic is Punk Archaeology Questioning Academic Traditions. My guest for the program is Dr. William who is an associate professor in the Department of History and a founding member of the Working Group in Digital and New Media at the University of North Dakota. Since 2012, uh, Bill has applied uh, methods uh, he has developed during excavations in the Mediterranean area to begin to document the life and material culture in the man camps of the Bakken oil patch in western North Dakota. In 2014, his his interest in the archaeology of late capitalism Extended to his work on the famous Atari burial excavation in the Alamogordo, New Mexico in Alamogordo, New Mexico, with a team of punk archaeologists and filmmakers. Uh, Dr. Carreher's, uh scholarly achievements are most widely recognized now in his blog, uh, "The Archaeology of the Mediterranean World." And He blogs regularly on it. He is also the co-founder of the punk archaeology movement with Costas Kurelis and a peer-reviewed volume on the same topic will appear later this year. In 2006, he produced the award-winning documentary Survey on Cyprus directed by Josiah Patro and he has quietly begun a new project to develop a digital academic press at the University of North Dakota. Bill, welcome to the program. Thanks. So let's start with the signature question. What is punk archaeology
3: and how did it start? Well, we get asked this a lot. um, And and you would think that I would have a better answer for it. But uh, in some ways, I haven't
2: heard the answer yet. Right, right. I
3: I haven't come up with like an elevator pitch, but I'll I'll tell you the kind of basic story. Um, Punk archaeology Punk archaeology began uh, in a series of conversations with my colleague and friend, Kostis Karelis. And we both kind of discovered that at various times we had uh, intersected with punk rock music um, at similar times in our life, just in similar sort of social settings. And we began to, to talk and we began to notice that, that a lot of archaeologists had had these similar experiences, that for whatever reason, there was a sort of our generation, I'm, I'm I did my, finished my Ph.D. in 2003, Costis is roughly the same uh, generation as I am, uh, that our generation had this intersection with uh, punk rock music or this particular kind of music. Uh, and, and we began to kind of ask the question, why? And uh, because both of us are, are sort of compulsive in our writing, uh, we began to post blog posts just sort of speculating on this at, our, um, at, at a blog called Punk archeology You can find it still. It's Punk Archaeology. Uh, Google it, and it's the first thing that comes up. And these kind of Uh this this sort of informal conversation uh, more or less crystallized around a number of different uh, uh, explanations for what this was. Uh, I think the first thing is that that it came from um, two people who were uh, active in Mediterranean archaeology, particularly in Greece. And I think we both sort of chafed under the tradition, uh, the traditional approaches and and sort of the traditional um, social attitudes that surrounded uh, Greek archaeology. I mean, Greek archaeology is still... Uh, even in even in this late date, a uh, sort of venerated, you know, around the world. As as when when people think of archaeology, they may think of Indiana Jones and the Egyptian desert or whatever wherever he was. Uh, but they're just as likely to think of uh, uh, the Parthenon. They're just as likely to think of um, uh, Greek pots and vessels at the Metropolitan Museum and these kind of things, right? Uh, uh, but it it, it has uh, retained a lot of its uh, mid to early twentieth century affectations. Uh, and I think that that um, me and Costis, uh, probably being somewhat outsiders to a lot of these affectations, uh, him being a first gener- uh, he being an immigrant Greek American, and me being a uh, uh, um, someone who went to a, a, a university in the Midwest. I went to Ohio State. We felt we were kind of outsiders to some of these these affectations, and and, and punk rock music was a way to kind of speak. Uh, to this kind of social divide or, or these uh, critique, maybe uh, some of these these um, traditions, uh, we also found it as a way to do some sub, as a way to summarize. Uh, our own field methods in some, in some capacities, archaeologists are known for being uh, do it yourself, DIY, you know, archaeologists, even the most well-prepared archaeologist has to cobble something together, whether it's intellectually, whether it's uh, mechanically, whether it's changing your methods on the fly, your procedures, your field procedures on the fly um, that there is this kind of uh, uh, atmosphere of spontaneity uh, and, and sort of, uh, yeah, this atmosphere of spontaneity that archaeologists have to sort of accommodate, uh, that's very much like the spontaneity that that is characteristic of of certainly the first generation of punk rock recordings, uh, live shows, uh, that kind of reality. And we thought, well, it makes sense that we are drawn to a music that that imitates so closely what it is we do in the field in some ways. Um, And then finally, uh, I, I think that that punk archaeology has, uh, as we've thought about it more, we've begun to zero in on, on the way in which punk rock music sort of displaced objects, right? I mean, the entire punk aesthetic, uh, was all, you know, it, as part of it, you had these, uh, objects that were being used in a wrong way, uh, perfectly good pairs of blue jeans that were torn up, right? Yeah, uh, right. Pe- People wearing uh, safety pins as jewelry. I mean, safety pins aren't jewelry, right? They're you know safety pins. Uh, you know this kind of bizarreness around it. Moreover, punks occupied these marginal places, right? I mean, uh, for for a suburban kid like me, uh, punk rock music was all about the urban areas. You know, New York City, the the kind of mecca of punk, and and. So So, I grew up in Delaware, and one of the foundation myths of, of early punk is Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine, who went to a very posh boarding school in central delaware, uh, fleeing to New York you know under the cover of night to start you know the, to form uh, mag- uh, television and and all some of these early uh influential punk bands so there was for me as as a um Suburban guy, there was this element of, of sort of fleeing to the city or, or to, to, to escaping to a place that for a white middle class uh, suburban uh, private school kid like me was certainly marginal space. So again, like the, the places, spaces out of place and displaced objects. Uh, became kind of an important element of of what archaeologists, or was an important element of what archaeologists studied. I mean, after all, we mostly study trash, right? We study objects that have been discarded. We study objects that are no longer in their proper place. A broken bowl uh, that's excavated is no longer sitting on a table in a Hellenistic house. Um, These things are all displaced in some way.
2: Okay, but I I guess my question to you is, uh, it sounds to me, and again, not being familiar with, with this as much as I probably should be, it sounds almost as you use punk sort of as it was at the time which is, is you know it's, it, punk is now a dated movement clearly although it, it, it's a manifestations linker on but my question to you is it a protest is it an, an anarchistic expression is it a, a, a way of saying let's reorganize the archaeological hierarchy in a way or does it go into a more theoretical kind of approach to archaeology that you want to sort of insert into what would clearly be a tradition Hierarchy, especially if you're dealing in the classical world, where it's very, very staged, and you know some archaeologists would say that that's much more a much more constrained perspective for
3: looking at archaeology. Yeah, I think all those things. I mean, again, I think that, that, that it originated in our sort of feeling of, of alienated is probably too strong, but we shouldn't exaggerate how alienated, you know, affluent, you know, Lou Reed from Long Island felt. Um, I'm sure he felt plenty of, of alienation, but on the other hand, uh, some of that was probably uh, as contrived uh, as, as ours was. Uh, we certainly feel alienated, felt alienated from some of the traditions in, in classical archaeology. And I think that that uh the punk mindset uh was uh in that in that regard subversive um again do it yourself is subversive right because it's suggesting that 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 the sort of main flows of capitalism which increasingly sells goods you know a, almost every goods Good or service can be procured for a price. Uh, DIYers say no. I want to do it with myself. I want to learn how things work. I want to regress. Uh, you know the arts and crafts movement and the resurgence of things like that, uh, which you know we wouldn't want to make arts and crafts purely DIY, but certainly some of that resistance to kind of mechanized production uh, is subversive. So uh, on a theoretical level, that that certainly is the case. Uh, Costis and I were both bloggers, uh, and and. Uh, blogging, I mean, it's hard to imagine now, but but certainly in the, um, you know, the the ten, seven eight years ago uh, was regarded as subversive within the field. Uh, in fact, there's still a kind of ambivalence toward the archaeological blog, uh, understanding where its limits can be. Yeah, then I agree with that, but I guess my question is in
2: terms of perspectives on archaeology, I mean, if you look at for example in the late 70s, early 80s the movements towards processualism those were academic changes those were trends in archaeology when you went away from studying say uh, what was typically studied in the classical world, which was the archaeology of the elites, bringing it down to process, bringing it down to an anthropological sp- perspective where you're looking at societies on a great, grander scale, you're looking at the archaeology of people rather than elites. Is this a different
3: way of expressing this? Uh, I think so. And I, I mean, I, and I think that you can't necessarily separate the kind of conceptual frameworks that we deal with. Archae- I mean, as you, as, as you know, the, the archaeology in the Mediterranean world is still tentatively, is still tentatively attempting to accommodate uh, um, the 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 lessons of new archaeology i mean gosh, it, it, gosh. and so certainly we're coming at it from uh i'm a surveyor i mean I, I cut my teeth as a survey archaeologist uh costis cut his teeth as as an uh, architect an architectural uh-huh. historian um so both of us approached uh the sort of mainstream uh art historical uh formalist approaches that are uh, uh so closely associated with mediterranean archaeology or particularly greek archaeology with uh, um I wouldn't, I'd not hesitate to call it new, but with a greater commitment to possibly to, to processualism and, and beyond uh, and, and to post-processualism um, and and playing around with critical theory, playing around with, with the newest digital tools, all these things which are really um, quite alien to the sort of uh, – uh, our, our notional sort of bastion of Mediterranean uh, archaeology, which is still uh, very much driven by tradition. And of course, that's exaggerating uh, a, a little bit, but there's and- probably – core to it i mean there's something there
2: yeah i think in the next segment and we're gonna have to take a break here very shortly i want to get more into uh theory and method and how you see archaeology emerging especially as a young professional in an academic circle but we will take a break now and we'll be back in about uh 30 seconds stay tuned
0: News. news opinion, news. opinion. Hear me. Hear me. Hear your voice counts me. Me. call toll-free 1-866-472-5787 472 5787 voice america presents a new kind of health awareness talk show the sharon kleina hour health environment and the power of water Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
1: Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, (laughs) VoiceAmerica.com.
2: We are discussing punk archaeology, an emerging tradition, I guess, or an emerging approach, if you will. And my guest is uh, Dr. Uh, William Carraher. And, Bill, let me uh, let me ask you this in a very pointed way. I think you had mentioned uh, over the course of the first segment, and certainly during the break we talked about this, on method. And method in archaeology, I think, is becoming a much more significant component of the archaeological dialogue over uh, both academic and cultural resources circles. And the reason for that, I think, is that uh, doing archaeology in this day and age requires high tech, requires a sophistication of method. And uh, for lack of a better term, I would say that theory in some ways is receding a little bit. And I want to get your fix from the punk perspective, if you will, on how this plays out and what your views are on that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of agree with you. I mean, I agree with your, your big picture assessment. I think technology has really driven a, a sort of reevaluation evaluation of, of method. And, and while I, I hesitate to speak for all who might call themselves punk archaeologists, I certainly think that um, at least there is uh, among uh, a strain of us a sort of growing skepticism toward the expansion of, of, of technology, for example, uh, in field methods, um, well, uh, I'm a GIS guy, uh, I'm, uh, I'm pretty comfortable uh, doing you know lots of high-tech things. I've been working recently on doing structure-for-motion photography, uh, structure-for-motion models, 3D models using photography. Uh, I go to digital archaeology uh, caucuses and, and, and conferences and meetups and things like that. But uh, my voice has tended to be one of caution that says, you know, what, what do these technologies that we do – uh, that we use in the field bring to the, uh, um, bring to the process. In other words, um, what are these things? Uh, the tools we're using, how are the tools we're using shape the conversations that we're having? Uh, one of the great aspects of punk music is that, uh, relatively traditional musical instruments were being used in all sorts of bizarre, horrendous ways. Uh, again, you need to only listen to the, uh, first, uh, Velvet Underground album to, to understand what wonderful noise a guitar turned around and played directly into an amplifier can make. Um, Using feedback in new ways, uh, using noise in new ways. And I think some of that was designed to sort of express the limits of what technology contributed to musicality. And I wonder if, if part of what we're trying to do is say, yeah, technology is great. Field methods are great. But what do these methods bring with them as kind of part of their baggage? Yeah, but I mean,
2: aren't you turning it sort of on its head in a sense? Are you going back and sort of being reactive and saying, let's go back to the old ways? Or or how are you looking at it then? Not
3: necessarily, but I think we have to say, uh, let's be aware of what the new ways, uh, what we lose by doing things the new ways. Uh, For example, if I'm going to use a a structure from motion or or 3D photogrammetry to document uh, my trench and then sketch it from a 3D model uh, later on while I'm sitting in the confines, of the museum or the uh, back, in, back at the lab or wherever, uh, what do we lose by not slowing down and, t- and drawing, uh, preparing a trench drawing during excavations? Um, in a CRM context, we maybe are gathering more information than we ever have before quicker. Uh, Because because there's so much uh, pressure placed on uh, uh, on efficiency Uh, in an academic excavation, uh, we may actually be sacrificing some things because the process of drawing, for example, that sort of manual tactile experience of looking and forcing your hand to produce uh, what you see uh, is being disrupted.
2: No, and I, I agree with that. No, I agree with that completely, and I think it's necessary for any archaeologist of any stripe to basically be at one with the, with the field and yep. to understand that you have to touch the dirt in order to understand what it means. There's no question about that, but my question to you is, you know, certainly in terms of the paradigm that you're putting together here, uh, in a sense, you're going back to that. You're going back to saying, okay, let's, let's slow down in a way, and we do that in, in cultural resource management as well, obviously, with uh, using different types of uh, subsurface excavation or excavating strategies to actually get more in contact with the dirt in the sands, especially in areas where we're not allowed to touch it anymore. So I, I think uh, there's an argument to be made for both sides, but I, I'm still interested in how you, how you integrate y- your, your concept and your outlook um methodologically with with that sort of punk perspective and I, it, it's fascinating and I'm still trying to get a handle on it yeah I mean I think
3: that you know okay first off punk you know encompassed a broad range of, of, of sort of manifestations from you know 17 year old disgruntled teenagers just playing a, you know a 50 song as fast as they could uh, right. to a genuine to a, to a genuine nostalgia and awareness that that these early pop songs had this kind of uh you know enduring character to them that they could be made Modern, They could be made contemporary. Uh, And that part of that also had a sort of critique, I think, of um, the way in which contemporary music uh, at the time, you know, 70s and 80s music was becoming increasingly sort of commodified and streamlined. And these artists weren't. Uh, you know, take nothing away from Michael Jackson. uh, But Michael Jackson, by the middle part of his career, was no longer even a person. He was a a product, right? Uh, The same could not be said for Paul Westerberg and the replacements ever, right? I mean, he was always Paul Westerberg. The replacements were always authentic, even if it meant getting kicked off Saturday Night Live. And I think that some of what we're, we're thinking about, or I'm thinking about at least, is that uh, as we embrace more and more technologies that allow us to get closer and closer to these um, goals that new archaeology set forward, um, are we beginning to lose that contact with the soil? And as part of the kind of larger theoretical critique that pushes back against processualism and, and introduces post-processualism that suggests maybe we should just go and walk around a little bit more rather than having uh, you know, all of our walking around being done with drones, with multiple cameras, shooting infrared photos uh, that produce a sort of product um, that, mm-hmm. that that is part of this kind of commodification of experience, this technologicalization to make up a word of experience. Uh, whereas whereas punk rock music, um, at the same time, you're having, you know, bands like Boston. I've been listening to a lot of Boston lately. I don't know what's wrong with me. Which was a completely commodified product. The mm-hmm. MC Five were not. Uh, the MC5 had a kind of authenticity. They had a kind of rawness to it. They had a kind of experiential character that um, I'm sure you could achieve at a Boston live show. But certainly listening to their great 1976 album, you are not encountering. Um, this is something that is a very commodified product. So so to kind of get just wrap back around and maybe make it a little more clear, I think that that um, our, 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 our interest in method is – Capturing that a little bit more of that authenticity, that spontaneity, that, that sort of um, thing that occurs when you're in, the, uh, when, when you are face to face with the artifact, with the landscape, with the strata, with the soil, as opposed to using technology to mediate, in which case you never become, in the most exaggerated sense, face to face with the music. You're always face to face with a simulacrum of the music, you're face to face with this technological mediation.
2: So how does that translate into what you're doing in the field? How you're collecting your data, and does it vary, say, between doing the type of work that you're doing in the classical world and what you're doing here on the garbage on the Atari
3: project? Uh, the Atari project is kind of a weird side thing, but but to, to, so that doesn't actually fit into a lot of that. It does to some extent, uh, okay. but I think. Like, one of the things that's really simple is, is uh, I think it's, it's, it's kind of pushing me to slow down, right, to take a little more time to walk around, to, uh, you know, keep my, my head to the ground, but also to do a lot more thinking in the field, uh, working out in the Bakken man camps, uh, workforce housing in the Bakken oil patch. I've been working out there uh, with a team since 2012. Uh, and what we found is that we think best about these sites Not when we're just, you know, going through and collecting tons of data, but we actually slow down at the sites themselves and sort of talk through what we're seeing. And um, from a methodological perspective, the new archaeologist in me, the Mediterranean survey archaeologist who has six weeks in the field to collect as much data as possible, sort of cringes at the waste of time. You know, (laughs) like standing there having a conversation when we should be writing things on forms. Dear Lord, what are we doing? But, when I get back home uh, and try to write up what i uh, uh, w- what I learned, I often find that that those conversations um, that that experiential component of archaeological work, that spontaneity uh, that sort of live show had a lot more uh, got as much meaning as as a, as a ream of forms from a Mediterranean project I see
2: what you 're saying now. let me ask you about that work in the back and oil patch what is what are you doing and and how are you going about doing it?
3: Well, we're we're adopting some techniques that we developed uh, in effect settlement archaeology that I, I began to think about as as a, a intensive sur- a pedestrian survey archaeologist uh, on projects in, in Greece and Cyprus, and we're sort of applying them to um, active settlements in the Bakken, these short term temporary settlements. Um, are so you're I- looking at
2: you're looking at settlement geography, basically correct.
3: Uh, yeah both on the big on, on, on a large scale uh, regional scale, but um, also on, on on the scale of individual units and individual settlements, and attempting to to discern uh, what we can learn from the material culture that speaks to uh, larger social issues you know who right. are these people what's their life what, what are their life, life paths, life ways to use a good anthro term uh, like
2: yeah but but again these are not uh, these are not concepts that are alien to plains archaeology. they've been doing this kind of work for a very long time absolutely this is
3: very much uh but they but they've very rarely applied it to uh our twenty first century or, or, you know twentieth or twenty first century settlements late twentieth early twenty first right
2: ah uh, um, okay, so you're looking at basically a contemporary scenario yeah the um, boc-
3: yeah yeah
2: these so are popular okay. lit- i, I I thought, okay, I was I was wrong about that. So you're actually looking at, in a sense, li- in a sense, living archaeology. And- yeah, in every sense, living archaeology. Uh, yeah. Interesting. So are you looking at, uh, I assume that one of the underlying principles in all of this is the boom or bust scenarios that uh, give rise to these uh, places because of the economic motivator, because of the emerging uh, shale gas production, and uh, that you are actually going to probably track it if and when this boom finally
3: busts, absolutely. This is this was our uh, our interest was to um, was to, to look at these temporary settlements uh, that are, that are established uh, either by large corporations or by uh, communities to uh, take advantage of the employment opportunities in a very a very sparsely settled part of the northern plains and attempt to document them.
2: It's an absolutely fabulous uh, research universe. There's no question about that, especially knowing what we know. And obviously there's a lot of parallels to the uh, WPA projects during the Roosevelt years and uh, the types of uh, uh, emerge, flourish, and decline kinds of scenarios that you're seeing. Now, are are you interfacing with the people out there a lot? Are you interacting with them?
3: Yep, the project has two components. One is a sort of material culture-focused component uh, that has architectural historians, has uh, arch Archaeologists and historians working on it. Uh, we do a lot of manual document, uh, old school documentation, everything we see, kind of stuff. Uh, the other side is is uh, run by a, a professor in social work who has a uh, Brett Weber who has a PhD in history and worked on uh, his dissertation was on Great Society stuff, uh, uh, model cities, which a Great Society program. Uh, so he's familiar not only with the major narrative of the American West, but also with oral history. And so uh, we've collected hundreds of hours of. Uh, of, of interviews with people living in workforce housing. Uh, and we have uh, over 50 man camps, as they're colloquially known, uh, documented uh, archaeologically, in other words, looking at the material culture.
2: Okay, and we'll be back with our fascinating discussion with Dr. William Carraher, who is probably an exemplification, if you will, of new wave archaeology, if you want to call it that, early twentieth first century archaeology, and we'll be back and have and continue this discussion after these words.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
1: Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
3: Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
2: We're discussing punk archaeology today. My guest is uh, Bill Carrer. And he has extended his research range to a variety of very interesting uh, universes and po- topics, in addition to uh, developing essentially a punk oriented perspective on archaeology and questioning, I imagine, and I'm seeing a lot of frameworks under which our profession is practiced. He's doing a very interesting project on the back of an oil patch in western North Dakota. Uh, which is associated with the shale oil explorations uh, that most of us are very familiar with at this point. So tell me a little bit about your interaction in this living archaeology scenario with the populations. And I assume you've been interviewing people and you've been asking them questions. What kind of questions are you asking them and how does your archaeology relate to the type of work and the type of scenarios that they find themselves in?
3: Uh, It's interesting uh, because, you know... In terms of project design, we, uh, we we cooked up our project pretty quickly, uh, and, and our questions and our archaeology didn't overlap as, as neatly as we would like them to. Uh, you know, as we began to collect our data, uh, we found that that the conversations we were having with people and uh, what we were observing didn't necessarily uh, uh, occupy the same uh, uh, domain, if if you will. Uh, but this and this ended up being kind of an interesting. Uh, uh, there's, there, there has been an advantage from this, and that's that uh, we're getting a much broader perspective on what's going on out there. So the questions we tend to ask are, are questions about uh, how people are finding uh, life in the camps. How are they finding uh, are these facilities or are these uh, uh, settlements, for lack of a better word? Uh, how are they uh, encountering community? Um, how are they, are they going to local churches? Uh, what are their interactions with local people like? But these are these are
2: communities that are just sort of flourishing and just sort of grew out of nothing. I mean, they had a base, a uh, location. I suppose it was Williston, and then they just emerged. Are people living in housing, or, or I mean, they're not living out in tents, I assume?
3: Well, <laughs> uh, uh, some are. Great, yeah, I mean, this is okay. So to get archaeological about this, we identified very quickly. Uh, we built a typology, right? Good old fashioned new archaeology stuff, and and we had three types of camps. Uh, we have. Uh, type one camps. Type one camps are uh, typically these things provided by major workforce housing providers, global companies. Target Logistics. They house our troops in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, these are prefab. They're brought in. They're set up within six. You know, can be set up in, in a matter of weeks. Modular uh, not-
2: housing. Modular
3: housing. Modular housing, yeah, on a large scale. Some of these facilities right. house thousands of people. Right. Uh, they're contracted with companies like Halberton who bring in their people to these facilities. They work long periods of time, but then they get two or three weeks off. So it's you know, uh, four weeks on, two weeks off, six weeks on, four weeks off, whatever, uh, that cycle. Um, the camps that we found much more interesting, however, are ones that uh, local people have sort of established uh, to accommodate – uh, people who aren't necessarily working for companies like Halliburton, but were either displaced by the first wave of oil workers, uh, and are continuing to function uh, uh, work in these communities in, in relatively normal ways. Like one of the guys runs the UPS shop, but he lives in this large trailer park, in effect. Uh, but these are our RVs uh, that have hookups for electric and um, pa- uh, for electric and water, and we now, call are these, these local people. Uh, it it varies. Most of them are not. Um, most of them, but they may be working, uh, not in the oil industry, but for housekeeping at
2: ancillary profession, supporting support
3: networks. Exactly. Um, so, so, so they aren't, um, as tightly tied, uh, specifically to oil profession, but they may be, you know, the guy who cleans, uh, these really greasy equipment that come out of the oil wells or whatever. They may be truck drivers. They may be, uh other support services. Uh, and we call those type two camps. And then our third type of camp are, are what we call type three camps. And they're, um, those things don't have water, don't have power. Uh, they tend to be squatters. Uh, they are uh, really hard to find. And they range from camps, uh, from people living in tents, in tree lines, in, in windbreaks, to uh, or in shelter belts, uh, to uh, units that are put out in the middle of the field uh, and, and lived in by people working on pipelines, pipeline cats. Uh, to, and these people uh, are actually living in tents. In some cases, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the housing, uh, I mean, to get a, uh, you live in New York, so this isn't going to be shocking to you, but uh, I've been out here for 10 years and I'm thoroughly North Dakotan. Uh, there are people who are paying uh, 1800 bucks for a, a, a place uh, in an in a RV park. Right. Um, which is shocking. You know, it's in, exorbitant it, for that part of the world. It, it is. Uh, I would argue it's probably exorbitant for almost any part of the world in terms of RV health, you know, parking. I mean, sure. we're dealing with, with primo uh, uh, prices here. And so if you come out and you don't have a job or you, you come out and, and when you first arrive, you may not have the opportunity to find a place in one of these RV parks. Although we think the housing crunch is, um, is, is lessening a little bit. But there are people who live in apartments in, in Williston and pay, uh, 20 I mean, 2500 bucks a month in Williston, North Dakota.
2: Yes, yes. This is crazy. I mean, But, of course, the salaries
3: are presumably somewhat commensurate. Absolutely. The, the, but, but nevertheless, uh, you know, people who are living on a fixed income or, or whatever. I mean, yes, there are all sorts of sure, problems of associated, associated with it. Um, mm-hmm. And what, what we've been able to do using archaeology out there is uh, we've been able to find places where – Uh, stories that we're being told and the realities of the patch don't coincide. Uh, one of our favorite stories is, uh, is refrigerators. Refrigerators are big appliances. They don't fit in RVs a lot of times. Uh These people uh, don't have a lot of time off, so they tend to buy food in bulk. Uh, the community, there aren't a lot of big box stores. Uh, if you live in Tioga, you're basically 45 minutes or an hour from the famous Williston Walmart, um. So you may go and buy your week's worth of two weeks' worth of food, put it in your fridge or your freezer which sits outside of your RV. Mm-hmm. And very and very rarely are these unit uh, are these things locked. And it could be a, and it could be filled with beer. Right? And it's unlocked which is interesting because one of the things you hear, you know, the famous New York times magazine article is just a example of this is how, you know, the crime increasing crime out there, you know, that you have all these people living together, they're, they're robbing each other, you know, don't leave your wallet on your seat or you know, don't leave your car. I mean, we live in a community where you, you know, some of my friends just throw their car keys under their driver's seat, you know, when they go mm-hmm. in. Right. Uh, so we're beginning to find places where the two narratives don't coincide perfectly. Um, and that's been uh, something that we, are, we can only learn in some ways from the material culture, that by observing the material representations, or the material analogs to human behavior, we can see ways where the stories that we're hearing, which are so deeply influenced by national media prejudices against working class people, dating back to the 19th century and the Industrial Revolution in some cases uh, – don't necessarily align perfectly um, on the other
2: hand on the other hand my guess is most of the people who are out there are very happy to be out there
3: uh we have found the whole range of people who are uh, uh you know living in shelter belts uh there mm-hmm. the, the, we 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 um, call them the grapes of wrath stories really um, they're coming from places much worse off and they're coming out here hoping to find uh, opportunities to work and uh you know, they, if you don't have a commercial driver's life, if you don't have a CDL, if you can't get into a company, if you, you know, uh, life can be really hard. Um, right. But on the other hand, we have lots of Horatio Alger sounding stories of people who just love it. They're making money, paying off their mortgage in Idaho, uh, you know, paying for their kid in private schools, uh, things like that.
2: So you have the whole range of responses and reactions. Yeah, yeah. Very diverse. So- Group of so, so a classic question that one would pose to an archaeologist, um, and certainly one that would be very relevant for now. If fifty years down the road, when these properties uh, presumably they'll either survive or they will not. Uh, a number of them, I suspect, will not. You go back there fifty years from now, when some of these properties might
3: be eligible for the National Register. What are we going to see? Uh, you know, it's it's funny. One of the ways that this project started was a. Uh, uh, Conversations with a, a fellow uh, archaeologist and researcher in the area, Richard Rothus, and Richard said you know i 've been looking at mining camps in Idaho or uh, in Montana rather, and uh, these are nineteenth century mining camps, and he says they 're almost invisible uh, you know y- you find very little left behind, uh, and of course, the reasons for this are are, are that they were very they 're occupied for a short period of time they often were not occupied particularly intensively uh, uh, you know, assemblages, archaeological assemblages develop over long periods of time, not, you know, 17 years or something. Uh, and uh, they were occupied by people who are very conscious of, of economy. They took as much with them as they could. Could, um, and they left little. And they left Right, little. exactly. And uh, I think that we're going to see a lot of that in, in North Dakota. Um, that I think that, that when some of these um, big workforce housing companies roll out, uh, their design is to be able to roll out and leave almost nothing behind. Um, some broken up PVC pipe, uh, you know the standard nails, you know tin cans, maybe a little scatter of things like that. Some of the RV, uh, RV parks, you may get underground tanks that are left behind for septic sure. systems. Of course, uh, uh, you may get uh, the nails, uh, the the really inexpensive nails used in making shipping pallets. Um, tons of shipping pallets out there. Shipping pallets are, you know, the are the the Bakken's equivalent to blue tarp uh, in a refugee camp if, if you know right. um, so we might find things like that. Um, may find some uh, uh, of the insulation that they used to, to place around uh, the units in the wintertime, uh, the extruded polystyrene insulation. But you're going to have to look pretty hard to find that stuff uh, you know in a plowed field. Uh, on the other hand, we might find things like leveled areas, right, uh, that, that are used, uh, filled with the red scoria um, stone uh, that's ubiquitous. Uh, all these sites get leveled. And so it may be one of these things that we, we, we find workforce housing sites in a century's time, not from the artifacts left behind, but from the terraforming that took place to create them. Uh, good use for, for, for high-resolution LIDAR, right, um, of course yeah. well organized square plots are going uh, to be something um.
2: I would assume that one of the analogies you would have here are the uh, California gold rush settlements and some of the Colorado silver mining settlements of the 19th century that would be very analogous to this as well as obviously the uh, Roosevelt Area
3: C- uh, era CCC camps and those kinds of temporary housing locations Absolutely, and uh, uh, one of my major research projects uh, for the last decade has been in Cyprus. And you know, we know there are mining camps in effect dating to the Bronze Age in Cyprus. So uh, Cyprus being, uh, and and my wife is an Australian uh, from Queensland, and so I'm often uh, looking at at Australian analogs to this mining camps. In of Queensland, course. Australia, and Western Australia. So there are a lot of analogs, uh, particularly from the industrial world, right, uh, where, where uh, capitalism creates new types of settlement.
2: Absolutely. And preservation conditions in that part of the world are actually very good. Yep, absolutely. Yep. And we will be back with my guest, uh, Dr. William Carraher, after these words. Stay tuned.
0: stimulating
3: talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast.
0: All the time the number 1 internet talk station where your opinion counts. Voiceamerica.com There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, Jr., President and CEO of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: Bill Caraher is my special guest for the afternoon, the early evening here in New York. And he is an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of North Dakota and is involved in uh, numerous projects from the Mediterranean involving classical Greek excavations to uh, more conceptual theoretical modeling that he's doing uh, linking archaeology and refashioning and recasting it in the model of punk archaeology. We've discussed that too. And finally, he's doing a very unique project, sort of reminiscent of what uh, Bill Rathje did uh, in Arizona back in the eighties, uh, uh, called the Garbage Project. And Bill is actually undertaking what's called the Atari Burial Excavation in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that project and what you're trying
3: to do? Well, this may be the first project that actually was explicitly fashioned a punk archaeology undertaking. Uh, uh-huh. Andrew Reinhardt, who's the director of publications for the American School of Classical Studies at Athens, uh, and works down the road in Princeton, New Jersey. He, uh, contacted a, a production company who was, uh, going to excavate, uh, looking for this, this Atari burial dump that's been in, you know, it was on Conan, this, this, uh, this, this dump of, of Atari games in Alamogordo at New Mexico, in the New Mexico desert. And, uh, He rounded up uh, some of the people who'd been working out out in the Bakken, uh, looking at 21st century uh, uh, settlements as archaeological artifacts, and some of us who had babbled endlessly about punk archaeology and dragged us all down uh, to New Mexico. Uh, to supervise uh, the excavation of the Alamogordo City landfill. Like Rathji's project, uh, we were drawn to objects out of place, right? Rubbish, things that were hidden away. Uh, this is going to a Ramones concert in, uh, in, in New York City as a suburban kid from uh, Westchester County or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, we wanted to go and see stuff we weren't supposed to see that had been buried. Digging up a landfill was awesome like that. Uh, but more than that, uh, Ratji's work in garbology was focused predominantly on uh, uh, domestic, domestic consumption patterns, right? I mean, his right. interest was what, indi- what do families uh, and communities consume and how, does it, uh, how do they discard? Uh, one of the, the interesting things about the Alamogordo dig, um, it was done very quickly over two days with a big excavator. Uh, the games were at 30 uh, feet below the surface so it was not uh we weren't able to get into the hole uh because landfills are very unstable um and we didn't have enough time to do a you know proper humongous excavation uh necessary to allow us to to actually get down to the deposit but this deposit of games was in no way representative of the community of alamogordo nor was it domestic in any sense this was an industrial deposit of games this is the uh Atari getting rid of these things uh, in 1983 uh, to write them off as losses, to write them off their books. Uh, And the presence of this within a landfill – um, is going to be uh, uh, is similar to, to, for example, the uh, in de- the, the um, debris from uh, the twin towers that was I think uh, at Fresh Kills, right? It was put out and in absolutely um, yes
2: in Staten Island.
3: In Staten Island, right? So, Rathji did uh, bucket core uh, bucket augering there. Uh, it, it, the the twenty second century or late twenty first century, Rathge is going to find a, a level of 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 uh, uh, construction debris on top of a lot of that uh, before of they. It's, so, so it introduces a, a certain amount of complexity. Um, it's, it's, uh, t- to uh, landfill deposits, uh, and, and and we were talking a little bit in the break uh, about the concept of fill. Uh, in archaeology, um, again, if, if punk rock has uh, fast, is fascinated by um, the discarded the marginalized I mean nothing is more marginalized in, in 21st century society as as garbage right. and uh, as archaeologists, we know there is nothing better than finding a midden or uh, finding a fill. Um, one of my projects in Cyprus we have a, a Meter and a half deep fill deposit, full of rocks and seventh century pottery, uh, and this is one of the coolest things I've ever uh, been around to document. So, uh, the the Atari excavations were in a, in a in a in an archaeological tradition. If, if uh, playing a 1950s pop song at ear-splitting levels much faster than it was attended is punk rock's tribute to the 50s, then uh, then, then digging up Atari tapes is, is archaeology's tribute to uh, excavating a, a midden in uh, uh, 7th century Cyprus. And what is your end product and what is your strategy and how are you going about doing it? For, for the Atari dig? Yes, um, uh, the Atari dig will be, uh, lots of different things will come out of it. We were, uh, basically we were brought in, uh, with, an, uh, a, um, uh, a documentary film team. Uh, there's going to be a documentary about this, uh, that's going to appear on Xbox Live, um, uh, probably by the end of the summer. Uh, and it's directed by Zach Penn and produced by Lightbox Entertainment, uh, But that's the kind of glitzy outside stuff. We're writing something for the Atlantic Monthly's web page. We're interviewed by lots of people, Harper's, whatever. Uh, And Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, we should have an article in Archaeology Magazine, or Andrew Reinhart will have an article in Archaeology Magazine. Uh, But we hope to produce an academic publication. Uh, We think we have enough data uh, that we can produce the excavations in the landfill, or or, or we can... um, document and publish the excavations in the landfill as an inquiry into the archeology span of late capitalism. Uh, What does late capitalism look like uh, in an archeological context? Uh, What does it mean uh, to find Atari games interspersed with domestic trash? Um, Is this the same thing as the collapse of domesticity that we find in the Bakken where people are uh, living literally on site for weeks and weeks at a time? Uh, this, this Victorian um, division between domestic and workspace, between domestic rubbish and industrial rubbish, uh, are breaking down as uh, late capitalism, uh, in good Foucauldian terms, absorbs our entire being. It debases us to the point where you know, we no longer are domestic. We're simply cogs in the machine. Even our rubbish has become a cog in the you – know, even our trash is simply mixed in with the industrial trash of the era uh, to be a somewhat so- hyperbolic – so there's a, a measure of homogeneity
2: here that uh, basically sort of blurs the distinction between the domestic world and the industrial world. Right. And this is what late
3: capitalism does to us, right?
2: Uh, that's for you to interpret. I'm, you know, I'm just <laughs> sort of trying to look at your perspective here. But very clearly, you do have a, a, a very uh, pointedly defined perspective on what this is. And um, certainly, there is merit to the argument. I would say, and um, I don't know that I would go that far, but but certainly, <laughs> um, you are looking at a very very serious issue, and I think it's it's, it's very well taken. I guess um, you had so you, you you included these tenets and these
3: objectives in your primary research design, I assume uh yeah i mean this was a salvage excavation as you know um as a working archaeologist you sometimes don't have as much input into the research design as you would hope uh, absolutely it's imposed on you absolutely yep and so we had to be flexible and dynamic uh it was a live show so to speak and uh we did the best we could i think we have um we've documented uh everything we saw um just like you would standing on the edge of a uh, of, of, uh, of a trench being dug by an excavator in new york city or someplace and uh but we think that the larger theoretical uh, uh, critique is is possible from what we what we've uh, witnessed. And
2: well, documented. there's certainly a, a tremendous amount of information you can gain from that. I guess one of the challenges for archaeologists going forward and doing these types of, of of projects, and this is one we've discussed in very many contexts and very many programs prior to that, is um, the possibility that methods have to Absolutely, be maximized because time is short and and budgets are short, and you have to really optimize
3: your information gain, as it will. So, how are you doing that? Uh, for sure. Uh, I mean, obviously, a lot of it was driven by by photography. Uh, we did a lot less note taking than I would do on an academic project, and a lot more audio, uh, digital audio recordings. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of it was uh, as much as we would like to have taken uh, hours and hours and hours to draw a scarp when the uh, you know, New Mexico environmental department says you can have this landfill open for three days. Uh, and two uh-huh. of those days were, we're extracting, uh, we're digging the hole. And one of those days was backfilling. Um, you know, uh, you do it as fast as you can, as best as you can. Uh, we have a lot of visual documentation with photographs. Um, we have lots of notes that have been recorded uh, that, we have to, that we're beginning to transcribe and work through. Um, again, I would have done things very differently if this was a six-week academic excavation. Uh, but again, I think that we collected a kind of core of material um, that, that we can um, at least uh, properly document the hole that was put in this landfill.
2: And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to bring this program to an end. very fascinating discussion with uh, one of the pioneers of an absolutely new perspective on archaeology in academia and, I would argue broadly, in archaeology generally. Bill, I want to thank you for appearing on the program. And uh, we will see you again next week with another program of Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology. Until then, stay well and good evening.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.